0: Hi, this is Drew. We were blessed in this episode that you're about to listen to to have Dr. Uh, Jack Kilcrease back on. This is actually his third time on the podcast, and in this episode he discusses uh, Sola Scriptura, the principle and doctrine that was so central to the Reformation, the doctrine, the teaching that posits that Scripture is the sole infallible authority in the Church, or the sole infallible authority in the life of a Christian. And importantly, we get into what Uh, It classically meant, basically, that the scripture is not the only authority. Sola Scriptura is often misunderstood to mean, not helped by the fact that some Protestants today actually take it to mean that, but rather that Sola Scriptura means the Bible is the ultimate authority and serves as the measuring stick for all other things and all other valid forms of authority, both... Uh, within and outside the church we also get into what uh church tradition means that term tradition that is argued about in theological discourse and in church discourse you know with we really unpack that there that there have been different concepts of what the uh, term tradition even means so we get into that and so um today's subject matter is uh of course, a point of contention and disagreement between Roman Catholic and Protestant traditions, both at the time of the Reformation, especially, and today. But not only, not only do we uh, love our listeners, we have who are Roman Catholic, and not only uh, have we had, you know, guests on in the past who are Roman Catholic. But as you will hear in this episode, our frequent co-host Stephen Burnett. Who, who, who's on this episode, he's in uh, the process of becoming a Roman Catholic. Now, we hold Stephen in prayers for wherever God may be leading him and calling him. And now some may wonder, wait, isn't this a Protestant show? Well, in a sense, very much yes. We have been founded since the beginning as a show that presented the riches of, the, of Protestantism and of the Protestant tradition, which is often overlooked in our modern Christian landscape. And over time, the podcast has uh, grown to strongly emphasize how the uh, reformational Protestant tradition, particularly, uh, sometimes it's also called classical Protestantism or magisterial Protestantism. That is the 16th century Protestantism of people like Martin Luther, uh, Thomas Cramner, John Calvin, Richard Hooker, how that uh the original protestantism i guess you could say can guide us and inform us today in better ways than later versions of protestantism of charles finney or of the separatist puritans or of the pietists or of the revivalists uh not to say of course that there weren't some good things about those movements uh but that said the doth protest too much podcast since the beginning has you know been Protestant, and, but it has also engaged with all things and is engaged with all points of view. And Stephen is a dear friend of mine, uh, past mentor to me in my ministry, and uh, he has been with this podcast since the beginning uh, and has helped uh, make it really what it is. And uh, I, I value that so highly, and I'm grateful and happy to continue to have him along with James and Charlie as a part of this show. God bless. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. This is Doth Protest Too Much, a podcast on Reformation history and theology. Um, However you listen to us, if that streaming platform gives you an ability to give our show a rating, we appreciate if you could do that, as well as leaving any feedback that you could. We appreciate it. On the podcast today, we have Dr. Jack Kilcrease, a returning guest. Jack was actually uh, our very first guest on the podcast back in 2020 when we started. This was the episode on the 17th century scholastic movement that we saw in the Lutheran and Reformed traditions shortly after the Reformation. The episode uh, has since been republished, but it's still on our back catalog. It's called Those Those Dry Scholastics. And Jack came back last year to discuss the difference between Luther and Zwingli. i the episode Blood with the Pope or Wine with the Enthusiasts. So, and here he is uh, here today talking about Sola Scriptura. Jack is a professor of historical and systematic theology at Institute of Lutheran Theology and an adjunct professor at Aquinas College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He holds a PhD in systematic theology from Marquette University. So welcome to the show again, Jack. Yeah, thanks for having me back. And uh, I joked that you're the second guest to have on three times. And the first one, we said once you're on the show three times, we owe you a T-shirt. We actually don't have any T-shirts currently. We had a we had a few made back in the day, and then we got canceled. That's another story for another day. I'll, I'll add something at the end of the episode that's <laughs> about that. So, um, so uh, before we get into it, tell us a little bit about what you've been up to because I haven't you published a book in the past year.
1: Uh, yeah, it was uh, published um, justification by the word, uh, which is um, about the doctrine of justification, and, and um uh, kind of it's a historical critique of different positions, and have kind of an argument in favor of saying that Luther kind of has a, the the best approach, and that Protestant theology kind of messed it up essentially. Okay. Subsequent to Luther, so yeah, so.
0: Uh, and we'll kind of see that similar theme today. Luther had something good, and it was later messed up, uh, as we'll get into. Um, so <laughs> that's how I see it. Yes. yes um, <laughs> now Stephen is joining us today too. One of our longtime co-hosts. Good to have you on. How's it scene. going, everybody? Yes. Hey. Congratulations. Uh, you are a dad now. How is that going? Ah, yep. uh, well, I'll let you know when I wake up. Uh, <laughs> when you wake. <win. laughs> um. Right. So Jack, we're covering solar scripture today. And it's really our first episode on this podcast really devoted to that. Um, although it has, of course, come up several times since we mm-hmm. cover Reformation and theology. So, and uh, for instance, I'll I refer our listeners in an episode James and I did recently it was called. If Anglicanism is everything, it's nothing. We talked about how sola scriptura was a guiding principle in our own tradition of Anglicanism, going back to the English Reformation, um, how it's apparent in our formulas. I read over a few of our articles from the 39 articles in the back of the prayer book that really demonstrate that Anglicanism, as it was established, held to Sola Scriptura, along with mm-hmm. the other Reformational traditions. So yes. that that part of Anglican history has been a bit whitewashed in a lot of ways. And, but that's the topic, I guess, mm-hmm. of a whole other conversation. I heard you say yes, though, Jack. Is this your uh, take two on Anglicanism as established?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's part of the 39 articles very clearly. Um, yeah. I mean, I think have some, I've got yeah, a little bit different approach than Lutheran Lutherans do, but it's, it's, it's similar. And so. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and which brings me to my next point, you are a Lutheran theologian. You're very involved in your own church body of the Lutheran mm-hmm. church, uh, Missouri Synod in theological yes, Synod. I am. Yeah. And so, uh, you can definitely speak to what Sola Scriptura generally is and how it is emphasized by Luther mm-hmm. and the other Lutheran theologians. So, um. So I guess to to and I'll I'll <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get you talking here in a second. I I realized I had a a lot that I had to preface for this first question. So I'll go mm-hmm. ahead and get into it. Um, I have found frustratingly so that especially today in our sort of Western Christian context, where Christianity as a whole is on the decline, um, and mm-hmm. Christianity has lost uh, at least a little bit of its prominence that it once held culturally. Uh, that there are nevertheless a lot of the people walking around that are really um, seeking. And a lot of them, I think, perhaps are looking at secular culture around them while they can't fully articulate it. They're repelled by aspects of it and they're looking for kind of rootedness and belonging and they're looking to Christianity, Mm -hmm. which is a good thing. But the options, the biggest options, if you will, for them, the ones on their radar are Roman Catholicism. Um, Mm -hmm. obviously, because it's so big. And then there's uh, a lot of modern American evangelical Protestantism, which is kind of an amalgamation of, you know, Baptist, Pentecostal, non denom and a Mm -hmm. mixture of all that. And a lot of people are very unfamiliar with the Reformation uh, Mm -hmm. history and the message of the Reformation. Um, And I find that unfortunate uh, because people both within the church and outside the church are missing out on important contributions and insights of folks like yes. and Luther. Mm-hmm. And, um, so Sola Scriptura are the authority that the Bible holds in matters of the church and in relation to councils and creeds. Um, how, how can you tell us? Because I think just as the message of the Reformation has been a bit garbled, I think Sola Scriptura, which mm-hmm. is really a, a you know a, a central principle, the Reformation has also been misunderstood. Um, so what is sola scriptura and what are some of the straw men you see of sola scriptura made of I mean,
1: that, that was a good question. Well, I mean, for what so I think one clarification is that I think that there isn't really in Protestantism like one doctrine of sola scriptura, I think that there's different versions of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, um so, so one, one version of it, which I think Catholics tend to turn to a kind of a straw man would be, well, what Alistair McGrath refers to as uh, tradition zero. So um, this guy, o- Heiko Obermann, who's a Reformation historian. he talked about them being tradition one, tradition two, tradition three. We can get into what those mean exactly in, in, in a moment, but um, uh, there's tradition zero and tradition zero is where um, kind of the conception is that you have this kind of, book that's just sort of there as as uh, I guess an an artifact of revelation or something like that and you're just sort of supposed to accept it and um uh it's just any normal human being can just crack it open and get the right doctrines out of it uh without God's illumination or without knowing the original languages or anything of that nature and um uh, the meaning is clear and evident, and you're either you know evil or insane essentially if you don't if you don't understand it correctly. And um, I mean that's I'm caricaturing a little bit, but um, I, I think in, particularly in, in Anglo-American Protestantism uh, that has been something like the default doctrine, and it's led certainly led to um, uh, Christian primitivism, where the idea is. Uh, the Bible is the only authority. It's not just that it's the ultimate authority, it's the only authority. So you don't read it with creeds, you don't read it with the tradition of the church or anything of that nature. Um, you um somehow at some point along the way, usually Constantine is blamed. Uh, mm-hmm. the church fell away, and now your group uh is really restoring the original kind of Christianity. And you get you, you get, you know, more orthodox Christian versions of this, like with the Campbellite movement or possibly um uh uh Seventh-day Adventists who are Orthodox Trinitarians, we have to I remind people of this. Um, or uh less benign versions, we might say in Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, which we're assumed that the church has simply um, disappeared. And it also, by the way, um uh in certain versions that we might say of evangelicalism, um, particularly that are not, I wouldn't say everybody in this will say in the Southern Baptist Convention, but uh, certainly the Baptist tradition has had this tendency. Um, and the real influence on these folks is um, something called uh, common sense realism that you get in the uh, uh, a group of Presbyterian theologians in the 19th century and early 20th century called the Old Princetonians. So they had a very distinctive understanding of scriptural authority. And then um, sometimes called uh, common sense that we're influenced by something called common sense realism, uh, which was invented by a Scottish theologian named Thomas Reed. And so the assumption is that um, the, uh, the Bible is, um, you know, uh, based on just um, uh, just examining the text uh, without any kind of reference to, uh, to tradition. Or anything like this, Uh, you can just glean the correct doctrines out of it if you're, again, a person of just normal intelligence, essentially. Hodge famously, who's one of these guys, famously uh, says he's like a biologist just going out into nature. Like he's using kind of an idea of Baconian induction, okay, like where Francis Bacon talked about how you just gather information and you plop it down and then you get truth about the world, right? And so you just go, he says, I'm just gathering together the little passages about different doctrines and then then whammo, you've got it. And I think that, especially in America, this is a very appealing idea because, uh, particularly in, in American fundamentalism, evangelicalism in the 20th century, because both movements were essentially forms of religious populism, um, if you think about it. I mean, uh, because it says that, rev- that the Bible is just self-evidently what it is, okay, um, and that you don't need any kind of special degrees or special knowledge of church history or special knowledge of the languages to get the meaning out of it. Uh, so if that's true, if you can just g- grab your King James Bible and just crack it open and get truth just like that, any ordinary, normal, tell him, can read, then that changes the locus of authority to the people rather than, you know, smarty pants, um, uh, you know, learned uh, theology professors or, um, you know, pastors or something like that, well-educated pastors and um, when you have these debates, especially about the historical critical method, which I, of course, am very critical of, but for maybe different reasons than these folks might be, um, uh, uh, in the night in the twentieth century, if you think about it, I mean, if you're if you're if you're promoting the historical criticism, basically you've got to understand all these different literary traditions that uh, allegedly make up the Bible. You've got to know like Hebrew, but also like Ugaritic, and you know, uh, probably won't hurt if you know Cadian <laughs> things like this. And so that makes the Bible less uh, accessible uh, to people, uh, changes the locus of authority from we might say professors and public teachers of the church, which were very important at the Reformation, to the people, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, so that I, I suspect that's one of the reasons why that that version, let's say, of sola scriptura has been very popular in the Anglo American scene in the nineteenth and the twentieth centuries mm-hmm. as a form of sort of, fact, sociologically, as a form of kind of religious populism.
0: And while I so. You talk about this uh, kind of strand of late 19th, early 20th mm-hmm. strand of like conservative Presbyterianism. These were the people that were part of the breakaway from the Presbyterian Church USA, right? And they broke away from Princeton. Yeah,
1: in the late 20s that happened, and then they formed a Westminster. Yeah. So. And that
0: kind of coincided with, I mean, the, the first use of the term fundamentalism as we know it, mm-hmm. right? Having the fundam- the fundamentals that they felt a lot of right
1: mainstream academic theologians were departing from, okay? Sure, I don't um, like the, I mean I don't like the term fundamentalism because again, it's a very slippery term. I mean, really, the people who were fundamentalists were just people who were just Orthodox Christians who wanted basic right. Christian doctrine initially. I mean, if you read someone like Gresham Machin, um, he is not tradition zero at all. I mean, he says, I stand in the tradition of St. Augustine and, uh, John Calvin, and I believe in the Westminster standards, right? So, mm-hmm. um, so I don't think that that would be a, I mean, in the modern, in the, what I'm talking about, the phenomenon I'm talking about, I don't, though he's certainly influenced by liberal Princetonians, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily put him in that category. Uh, he, I mean, he's a, he's a confessional Presbyterian, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, for example, the, the SVC and then like the, in the Bible college movement, this was very influential. If you if, if you look at this, how influential the Princetonians were, because um, when, when the main lines go very liberal, you have tons of people leaving them. And then they, what they do is they start these Bible colleges in the early to mid 20th century to, to train pastors. And what they and then they tra- how they trained them was uh, not only did they, you know, obviously, use the Bible, but they used. Uh, the works of the old Princetonians. And they, they 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 publish these really like rickety, cheap copies of all their works. And if you go to Baker Bookhouse in Grand Rapids, you can find millions of these little crappy, you know, badly published looking, where they didn't even change the imprint, okay? Uh, versions of these 19th century works, like from Hodge and Warfield and all this stuff. And that's what they were all training them with. So George Marsden says, really 20th century fundamentalism is a synthesis of the eschatology you get out of um, Uh, Darby and um, popularized The the Dispensationalists, yeah. The Dispensationalism, which would get popularized by this the the Scofield reference, which by the way is really a dumbing down of Darby, who had a much more complicated system uh, with then the old Princetonian theory of revelation with the common sense realist Mm -hmm. hermeneutics. And you can still see the influence on someone like Wayne Grudem uh, or Bruce Ware, these very popular theologians in the SBC even to this day, right? At the beginning of his... um, uh, dogmatics, uh, which I listened to on Audible, it took me seventy hours. Um, it was quite the ordeal. Oh. Uh, Brudem <laughs> says, "Well, I'm not going to bother with any of this fancy stuff. Uh, looking back at the church tradition, I'm going to. I'm just going to just take doctrine right from the Bible and just plop it down there for you. And then, and then the next, uh, then the next moment, he begins talking about the incommunicable and the communicable." <laughs> Attributes of God, which by the way is an idea invented by a Reformed Orthodoxy. So, um, right. uh, anyways, uh, so uh, so yes, these are people. This is again the 20th century, very uh, what becomes called fundamentalism. This is very uh, influential in, 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 the, in the circle of that the pick theory of revelation, a very distinctly modern theory of revelation, too. I might add. So,
0: I mean, you speak of like when I think of fundamentalists today, I think of mm-hmm. well, obviously, as you said, it's a slippery term. I've yes, noticed, especially in like the more liberal mainline settings nobody wants to be a fundamentalist so if, oh, anyone, right, sure. if anyone disagrees with anyone you're charged with being a fundamentalist right. um, but that's another story um but when i think of fundamentalists today generally i think of like someone very uh uh crass crude forms of proof texting uh mm-hmm. in order to like say something that may or may not be there in in the text um uh, taking passages in extreme isolation, things like that. Um, and of -hmm. course I wouldn't want to be that either. Part of me sympathizes a little bit with, I mean, and I think part of this has to do with the history going back to the Princetonians and what you saw, Mm -hmm. but is that when it comes to the, the Academy, the biblical scholarship Academy, a lot of them, and at least in functionally, I think have replaced the, um, in certain ways, they've kind of replaced the old magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church in 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 maybe perhaps in mainline Protestant Christianity, because oh, that's what that's quite true. Yes. You're right. right because they say, well, uh, I can't really uh, I can't really properly understand this passage. Um mm-hmm unless I have like a Bible scholar weigh in and inform me and, and guide me on how to properly interpret. I mean, it, it's um, so, so part of me, like, I think some of the concerns the reformers had, they could not have foreseen this later situation, but, but, you know, I do see kind of a parallel there. I don't know. Um, but that's just my thought. Um,
1: okay. Yeah.
0: I think you're right about that. Yeah. Now, Stephen, I thought you had something.
2: Yeah, no. Uh so first of all, I want to say uh I'm, I'm two you know two things about me. One of them is that I am not an academic. I'm a theologian okay. in the same way that I'm a priest, and that all Christians should be both. Um <laughs> right. people, yes, and,
1: everyone's a theologian,
2: yeah. That's right, that's right. Um, and second is I'm actually uh in the process of becoming Roman Catholic so i'm i'm on that on that journey right now myself okay. um so my i've got a point of agreement with you and a point of disagreement that i want to bring up and the point of agreement has to do um with the um uh, i forget the phrase you used in the paper but uh oh uh, monism right uh that hmm. I, i've seen a lot of that a lot of that in uh cuz i was pretty very interested earlier on in in uh what is uh, the emergent church and those guys very much uh, centered on? Well, you interpret everything through scripture and through uh, through Jesus in scripture. What would Jesus do? Kind of thing. That's the lens through which you interpret all of scripture. Which you just get to make up. You know what Jesus would do, and then decide what part of scripture you want to take, what parts you want to throw away. and it's that's ridiculous, and uh, I w- I definitely agree with you there. My point of disagreement. I'd like you to like weigh in on this. Is um, it seems to me, and uh, it seems to me that your, if I understood you correctly, your view of, um, of our, you know, ability to interpret scripture comes from, uh, from Luther's anthropology, right. And, you know, laid out in bondage of the will. And uh, to me, I feel like there's a bit of question begging there. And what I mean by that is if Luther Read scripture and turn, from his reading of scripture, realized that human beings, um, you know, can't just in, in ourselves open up the scriptures and understand. And then we have to have, um, you know, we we have to be moved upon by the Holy Spirit to even be able to understand what they mean. Uh, if mm-hmm. that's the case, then isn't there a circular argument there? Isn't it? Luther got that from scriptures that he could read scriptures and understand scriptures. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, I understand what you mean. And, yes. and Jack, I'm really
0: out. Jack. I'm really looking forward to your responses. I will say though that for the very first time, announced to the world at least on this podcast, Stephen has disclosed <laughs> that he's in the yeah. process <laughs> to being a Roman Catholic. Uh, uh, so, uh, and and Stephen and I have talked a little bit about this before on on just one on one, and and I said he he if he chooses to do that, he can remain a co-host on this Protestant show because I value him as a as a friend. And I uh, uh, I think it would make the podcast frankly more fun too. So uh, so thank you for that, Steven. <laughs> really I want to know Jack's podcast. response, which I'm probably gonna agree with more uh, than what you just said I'm just kidding. No, but yes, please, Dr. kokris go ahead.
1: <laughs> uh, well, yeah, well actually very good question. Well, um, uh, the answer is that um, many, many many realities are simply known through the reality themselves. So we know the sun mm-hmm. is bright because the sun is bright. Mm-hmm. On us, right. Um, and um, so I guess you could say there's a circularity, uh, but um, the circularity is one of simply uh, how we know reality from from reality. So it, it's um, so uh, so the Son of, so we, we see the uh, glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus when the Holy Spirit removes um, the veil from our heart, as Paul says. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we understand the scriptures in light of that. Now, that also doesn't mean that the sun is just an isolated thing. It also shines on other things as well. And so uh, Lutherans and the Reformed tradition um, in the 16th century uh, didn't simply rest their claim that, yes, now I've got the Holy Ghost fever, and I'm enlightened, but you're not. Mm -hmm. uh they they did appeal to Catholicity. We can look at, for example, um uh, Confessio Catholicica by Gerhard or um uh the examination of the Council of Trent is the hundred-pound uh, gorilla because it elicited 42 responses from uh Catholics and actually caused a, a change in how Catholic apologists dealt with the Reformation. So um so uh, the, sh- the, the 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 sun shines and we and we see the truth, okay, but uh it's not that uh, we're the only ones that it's shining upon. If we can see that the shine that the sun has shown on other people or other objects in the world, we can be aware that there is, that there is a shining sun. So that would be my response. I would also say that um, if, we, uh, if we challenge you a little bit, um, yeah. uh, Catholics might uh, be subject to the same problem because we know papal infallibility because we, there are texts in the new Testament that teach
2: papal infallibility allegedly
1: uh, and uh, well, how do you know that? Well, the church is infallible and tells us that the texts teach infallibility. Right. So um, so you could criticize Catholicism by having a kind of circularity. Uh, well, is-
2: if I may. So I, I thought I thought about that, too, because that's something that I've been I, I, as I was reading your paper. I was trying to, like, bounce back and forth between how, uh, you know, how I might see these same criticisms through what I'm looking at right now. Um, and my the way I'm seeing it is. That we have, I have a historical, uh, a historical case for Catholicism in that um, Christ, you know, we we know that Christ came and resurrected outside of outside of Scripture. We know that uh, through the testimony of uh, of early Christians, we know by arguments based on persecution, yeah, um, and things like that. Um, so and we know that Christ left us uh, what he left us to to grow and to expand was a church and was a body of Authoritative uh, men in in a uh, in yes. loose
1: structure. I'm yeah, with you completely so. I'm yeah, yeah, with, yeah. So give you the apostles. Yes, that's
2: true. Right, right. So my my point is simply that um, there would seem to be in order to get to sola scriptura, there would need to be a change in the way we are to uh, receive the revelation of God from the early couple centuries of the church uh, to the point where. The the New Testament letters are are, are available and ready, um, and there seems to be uh, I don't know what warrant there would be to believe that there was that change.
1: Well, um, okay, so here's the way of framing it. So I would frame it. Mm-hmm. So we say in the creed, and we all agree with this. Uh, those of us who are Reformation Christians, as well as mm-hmm. Roman Catholics, one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, um, or, mm-hmm. Christian or whatever however you want to translate it. So it's an apostolic church, so it's based on the testimony of the apostles. So what's authoritative? The apostolic tradition. I mean, we also agree the Old Testament would be. So, um, okay, so the question of Sola Scriptura is, so the question, the debate is is not, do we agree that what the apostles taught was authoritative? The question is, how do we encounter apostolic authority now? Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. Okay. So modern historiography has shown that, um, apostolic succession is a total fiction. There was no Bishop of Rome until the late second century. So there was no successor Peter. Um, so that's out. Um, there, there was an unwritten tradition. Irenaeus and Tertullian make reference to it, but when they, they'll tell you what's in it. It's the Apostles' Creed, which is the same content as the New Testament. So there's nothing about purgatory. There's nothing, none of the Marian doctrines. Nothing. It's it. So it's the same content as the New Testament. So after process of elimination, what have you got left over? That's the apostolic tradition. The only valid apostolic tradition left over are the New Testament documents. So you got to test everything against them. So that would be my the point that I would make. So we have three sources. We might say apostolic ministry. I would also point out, even if apostolic succession were valid, the problem is, is that you, the apostles couldn't transfer their um, offices to subsequent generations. Because as you remember, they were, they were able to transfer from Judas to Matthias, but he had to fulfill two criterion first. He had to, mm-hmm. one, be with the Jesus but for three years. Two, he had to be witness to the resurrection. Well, no subsequent bishop of the church could fulfill that criterion, and therefore the, right. the apostles could never transfer their offices. Therefore, you can't parlay statements about the apostles into statements about the institutional church. Um, so, I mean, um, and then of course there's the. Can point out there's the problem of catholicity because rather large swaths of what Trent teaches simply have no basis in the early church at all. So, more no, than Marian, what 19th or 20th centuries. So, yeah.
0: while we're on the topic of church history, Jack, mm-hmm. uh, you brought up Heiko Oberman earlier, um, and for right. our um, listeners, Heik, uh, that that's when Jack referred to traditions one, two, three, and zero. And I remember right. reading this essay from Dawn of the Reformation, I believe was the name of the book, which is a collection of Haiku Oberman's, a um, um, uh, collection of his essays. And I can't recommend listeners enough to, to check out. I think he's one of the, the one of the best, if not the best, at least on the North American side. Of course, he wasn't originally from North America, I don't think, but uh, Reformation scholars to read. And um, this, especially if you want to get the um historic late medieval milieu of which the reformation comes out of i highly recommend it um kind of a side note chapter five out of it's my favorite that's when he gets into the how luther and the medieval medieval scholastics differed on the doctrine of justification um but you but he one of the essays in there he talks about tradition because we hear this thrown around it's like it's like how does scripture relate with church tradition it's like mm-hmm. is my authority just scripture or is it scripture informed by tradition uh people have there's kind of a myth about anglicanism that says we are we are the three-legged stool scripture reason and tradition is not really quite that mm-hmm. I've done a previous episode which says that's not exactly what Anglicanism believed classically the hooker didn't say that but anyways okay. what is tradition okay the, 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 the we we kind of throw this term around and mm-hmm. we don't really spec- getting the specifics of what we mean by it. So Obermann said different concepts of the tradition arose of what church tradition is have ar- arose throughout the history of the church. And Do you want to um, kind of take us through that on these different... Yeah,
1: absolutely. Okay, so yeah, so uh, McGrath adds Christian Zero, which I mentioned already, but right. um, Obermann has Tradition One. Now, Tradition One basically takes the position that, and this is the position that Anglican's uh, classic reformed people. And then Luther, conventional Lutherans would take, uh, which is the view that scripture is not the only authority, which would be sort of the Tritian zero, but it's the ultimate authority. And it's a, it's, the, it's the fountain and then the church tradition flows out of the fountain. Right. So it's possible that we might say that you have a fountain that's, that's pure, but then the stream might get mucked up a bit on, along the way. Right. So, But there is always a valid uh, tradition in the church because the second that, you you know, Phoebe or whoever had Romans had um, um, gets it and then starts reading it. People say, well, what does Paul mean by mean by all this jazz about an Adam all fell or whatever? And she has to start explaining it or whoever was whoever was explaining it. Right. And so that at that point, you start generating tradition. Right. But you can always test that tradition. Which manifests itself in the form of liturgy, uh, uh, uh the findings of councils, uh creeds, um, uh, you know, uh people writing systematic theology books like I do. Those are that's all tradition, but you can test it against the original, and you can extend the logic, certainly, of the things that you find in scripture. Um uh, you know, so, for example, the, the, the Fifth Ecumenical Council talks about um, what's called uh, n hypostatus" and "hypostatus" Christology. Are those terms ever used in the Bible? Of course, they're not, right? Um, do they portray and extend the logic of what you find in Scripture? Absolutely. I mean, it says that the Logos is the is the is the uh, subject of the incarnation. That's what Scripture teaches. But now we're using new conceptual categories to extend the logic of it and uh, created an authority of counsel. So that's all valid, but you have to be able to always test it against the original um, apostolic tradition um, because the apostles are Jesus's authorized witnesses. And if you're in the Christian tradition, then logically you have to claim a dependency on what they teach. And um, if uh, you can't make it coherent with that, then you're in big trouble, right? Uh, then you have tradition two
0: so, tra- so I'm sorry. You just described tradition one, and I know there are some. I, 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 when I read it, I remember there being examples of early church fathers who who, who you could demonstrate held to this concept. I can't right. So Overman
1: um, says that the yeah the, the early church that was basically their position. So certainly they do talk about there being an unwritten apostolic tradition which has been handed down to the churches. But then when they tell you what's in it. Uh, it's just an ex- it's a summary or exposition of what's in scripture. So uh, uh, Tertullian, uh, from a Protestant perspective, has kind of a funny way of putting this. He says in Prescription Against the Heretics that, um, uh, that we have this apostolic tradition and the New Testament books agree with it. So they must be authoritative. Well, we kind of make, make it the other way around. But nevertheless, it's the point that he's making is that it's the same content, right? Um, um so, so that, yes, so that, uh, that's, uh, that was their attitude. Um, now, uh, with tradition two, then, um, there's some disagreement on this one when this arises. Now, um, Obermann seems to think that this goes back to Basil, Caesarea, and Augustine. Um, Basil talks about there being unwritten apostolic traditions concerning liturgy. Though, interestingly enough, um, when you look at, um, Martin Chemnitz, the great Lutheran theologians, um, Typology of, of tradition when he has eight forms of tradition when he's responding to trans ideas about tradition. He thinks that um, his, his concept of tradition as unwritten apostolic traditions about like liturgy is a perfectly valid form of tradition. So that's number seven, actually, by the way, in his typology. Um but in any case, so um Brian Tierney, um, who wrote the book uh Papal Infallibility, the, uh, the evolution of papal infallibility, um, I'm sorry. The origins of papal availability: 1150 to 1350. He's a canon, He's a Roman Catholic canon law scholar. Uh, he actually places it as late as the 14th century. So, because Aquinas, after all, Aquinas does say that you derive all doctrine from Scripture, though we could argue that maybe he wasn't entirely consistent on that point. Uh, and so, anyways, this position says uh, this is sometimes identified with the, true, the two source theory that you get in the Catechism of the Council of Trent, uh, which says. The apostles received the kerygma from Jesus, and then some of it they wrote down in the form of the New Testament, and then some of it they didn't. Um, and uh, that became essentially the position of the Roman Catholic Church at Trent, though I know Roman Catholic scholars who deny this. Uh, and and for most of the modern period, prior to, I would argue, the 19th century, or really well into the 20th century, that was sort of the main way of understanding Scripture and tradition in Catholicism, though it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, Then there's tradition three. And tradition three is probably traceable back to a Catholic theologian in the early 17th century named uh, Patavius. And uh, Patavius was the first church historian at the University of Paris in the early 17th century. And uh, what he argued um, well, what he noticed was that the anti Nicene fathers got the Trinity pretty wrong. (laughs) Uh, They were subordinationists, most of them at least. Maybe not Irenaeus, but but certainly Tertullian and Justin Martyr and a bunch of the other people. So they were subordinationists, so they were heretics according to Nicene Nicene Orthodoxy. So he says, look, Nicene Orthodoxy is a development, okay? So why are the Protestants being so inconsistent? They, um, They accept one development, Nicaea. But then they don't accept all the other developments, like, for example, purgatory or Marian doctrines or the penitential system or a whole bunch of other things. And so he argues essentially that over time, doctrine develops under the guidance of the church. The the, the New Testament, maybe the the apostolic tradition extra to the New Testament is sort of a seed and then sort of grows into the tree of the the Catholic Church. And and Cardinal Newman then, of course, really goes to town on this one uh, under the influence of people like um uh Adam uh Johann Muller uh in his book Symbolism. Yeah. I was going to say I
0: remember reading a lot about Muller he seemed to be yeah. have this organic concept of the church. I mean you, like you just mentioned the seed and the seed grows like the church yeah. is always a growing thing and
1: Oh yeah, well, Muller's famous you know, line is that the church is a prolongation of the uh, yeah. incarnation So uh, which by the way the Vatican condemned um though I i find that found the quote also in uh, uh Cardinal Manning interestingly enough. So um of all people. But in any case, so Newman kind of argues that um, you know, scripture is sort of the seed, or at least in judgment's the, the seed, and grows it grows into to the Catholic Church. And he's he makes a parallel with with the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. He says, look, those are pretty vague too, but then they get kind of fleshed out by the New Testament. So it wouldn't then not be logical for the New Testament to kind of get fleshed out by um the life uh, of the church. I mean, he has other arguments as well, right? Of course, but um uh, but that's kind of the direction that he goes. And that, again, a lot of Catholics actually had a rather negative reaction to that in the 19th century, particularly the uh, Neo-Thomas, uh, who really still wanted to maintain an idea that basically the Catholic Church that existed in the 19th century kind of fell out of the sky in the 1st century, which we know is not true. Uh, but in the 20th century, arguably, uh, that this position kind of has picked up steam. And... Um, Obermann, who, again, is a Reformed Protestant, so uh, this is his partisan position, he feels that this is sort of what it does is it kind of relativizes scripture because functionally it makes the institutional church an ongoing organ of revelation, which, of course, is not really how Newman or post-Vatican II Catholics think about it, but functionally all the clarifications which take place um, end up being generating new doctrines and so in his mind actually are new forms of revelation whether that's fair or not i'm just saying that's what Oberman teaches um uh so that would be tradition three um uh so that and that tends to be the direction that contemporary uh, catholicism has gone though again i you know there's still a lot of people around who go for just a more, more conservative view of tradition too i think so yeah
0: um oh steven you're gonna go
2: yeah no, i uh, yeah to me, um, this the conflict to me seems to be between a uh, authoritative magisterium to interpret scripture versus you know my or my group's um, you know fallible uh, means of interpreting scripture. Um, and uh, you know I, you don't have to just take it all the way down to. Um, you know, me and my Bible, you can take, you know, me and, and these other hundred guys in our Bibles or me and this confession uh, in our Bibles. Like, to me, that's the that's the, the conflict. It's not between um, the church and scripture, which I feel like uh, Smith kind of felt that way. He needed the uh, the church to kind of be Lord over the scripture and determine which parts were, uh, mm-hmm. were important and which parts could be thrown out, right? Um, and I think that's, Wrong, um, but at the same time, you know, if I' am fallible um, and you know a hundred of me is infallible and a million of me or a million people are, are are not are not fallible or sorry are fallible, then where is the certainty and the safety in numbers? Um, why can't uh, a large group, uh, why can't a whole denomination, why can't why can't a confession um, err in our understanding of scripture? Um, and if we can err, then how can we, you know, it's not a matter of scriptures being infallible, if scripture is infallible, it's a matter of our interpretation of scripture being fallible. So if there's not some um, organ of infallibility to um, to help us to understand what what is written, uh, then it seems to me that we can just take the Bible, uh, however big the group is, however old the group is, we can take the Bible and we can... We can just run with it. Um, that's uh, the, uh, so. Anyway, my point is: I think that the, the Catholic Church' the claim is that they we are interpreting Scripture. Uh, mm-hmm. We are the the, the body that interprets Scripture. So, anyway, that's my that's my thought, and my, I guess my question.
1: Right. Oh, right okay, so number number one, I I mm-hmm. again, I think I've already outlined that the, the I, I would challenge the historical basis, which mm-hmm, we, right. That so it, so you can so I, I would say you know theoretically it might be a nice idea but then there's in, but then there's no historical evidence that that's in the claims that the Catholic Church makes I mean mm-hmm. um, and again this is all this is not these are not my ideas or things that i learned from you know um, backwards fundamentalists but I mean these are well established historical facts uh, the number the second point that I would make is that if the Catholic Church is infallible. Then it puts uh, the individual believer who isn't infallible in no better position than your average Protestant their Bible, because you have to uh, to get certainty. You would have to actually be infallible, know that you yourself infallibly understood the magisterium,
0: Uh, right? Because how does the magisterium communicate its interpretation? It does it in the forms of.
1: I know you've made this point. I'll let you add to that. Generating documents. And if, if your complaint is that documents are open to interpretation, well, then the ones, the magisterium Mm -hmm. generates are open to interpretation as well. Now I mentioned this to a Catholic friend and they said, Oh, well, if people misinterpreted it, then they would just write a new document to explain why the person's interpretation was wrong. And then clarify the doctrine further, which would in turn generate another doctrine, a a document, which would be open to interpretation. Um, And then, of course, you have the problem that of how much of it there is. Um, I was reading the other day that there's uh, 39 uh, volumes of the the decretals of the medieval popes. That's a lot of tradition. Um, Now, you can say it's not all infallible, but there there are, I think, 38 um, infallible councils of the Catholic Church. That's way more complicated than a Bible, most of which is just poetry and history, and then have very key passages which deal with doctrines, right? So, Mm -hmm. Uh, I would, lastly, I would say that, um, it's not a free for all about how you interpret scripture for, like I said, for Luther, it is the criterion of internal clarity and external clarity. And so it, all of our readings of scripture have to be coherent with the unconditional gospel, uh, you know, where we got with the unconditional grace that we find in Jesus, all of our readings have to correspond to the literal meaning of the words in the Cetis doctrina, uh, the seats of doctrine, um, um, you know, uh, and then thirdly, a third criteria, which maybe Chemnitz would add in, which I think is, is good, is Catholicity. So, I mean, if you can't find a basis, a precedent for your interpretation of Scripture and particularly in the ancient church, then you're kind of in trouble. So um, mm-hmm. uh, so it's not just like me and my Bible or even just my group in my Bible. Right. Um, there, the, 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 Remember, when Luther talks about reading Scripture, there's prayer. Uh, meditation and then testing. Now, testing can go two ways. One, the sinful world can rage against you if you get it right, but, it, but you can also find out that you're wrong. <laughs> but you'd yeah. have to be have to be found out to be wrong on the basis of the three criterion. Um, does it cohere with the with the gospel? Does it cohere with the literal meaning of the words? Does it cohere with the catholicity of of the interpretation? Right. And I mean, I think on those bases, that's why I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm not a Roman Catholic because I simply I find mm-hmm. that large swathes of Roman Catholic doctrine just simply can't meet those tests. So, and, especially and Catholics.
0: Jack, I was going to um, add to to um, kind of what you were saying, and I think you were going to you started to go in this direction when you talk about inner and external clarity with Luther. But mm-hmm. for me, I kind of have this working theory that everyone approaches the Bible in one of in one or in one of two ways. They're either Lutheran about it or they're Erasmian about it. That's kind of my theory. Um, okay. uh, I'd be curious to see, but because they had very different um, approaches to, I mean, Luther yes. and Erasmus had their famous debate, Bondage of the Will is a product of that. Luther, yes. Erasmus believed very much that the scripture needs an active interpreter, someone mm-hmm. who can mine the scriptures, which may have a lot of obscurity in the text and needs a little, you need to mine it and uncover. Uh, the teaching, and you do that through various ways of going about it. While Luther saw the scripture as, and Erasmus couldn't wrap his head around how Luther could make this point, but Luther saw scripture passively that um the scripture isn't it, well. It's the Holy Spirit who's really doing the interpreting, not the human at all, and that. I read you. You don't read us. Sorry. If you the Bible reads you you don't read it the Bible reads you right and that may sound so um especially to modern ears that may sound so silly because they may still say well you're still you're still imposing your own interpretation on it even though you say you're not you're saying the Holy Spirit's doing it um mm-hmm. but, but I don't know I have always found um there's something powerful in that for me and this is why I would take the side of Luther there's there's power in that in that humility that one shows toward the text of scripture um that is ready to receive the holy spirit's illumination on the heart and mind and i believe the holy spirit can can do that even if it's just one individual Mm -hmm. um and and versus a million who get it wrong i don't think those situations often come up i think it kind of a, a kind of a Small scale version of it came up with Luther and uh, and the you know the power center of the church in his day, but um, but yeah, what what would you say? I guess what would you each say to that? Starting with Jack, <laughs> so.
1: right? Well, I mean, I would say that's um, I mean, if, if 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 the core of the scripture is 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 Christ, okay, and and what, what's the message that we get in Christ? Well, it's that in the cross, all of all, our totality of our human nature is condemned and so it, the, the and so what scripture tells us is that we are completely condemned uh, everything within us is wrong as paul says um and then pulls us out of our own subjectivity to um, jesus who is the only righteous one and who is the only one who uh comes to us by grace alone and this completely runs utterly and totally contrary to most forms of human religion all the world religions but but i would say um well, um, you, you could also mention um, various forms of legalistic Christianity as well. So if our default mode is legalism, then one of these things is not like the other, and it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit, I think. Um, and so uh, so, so when we we, when we appeal to the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we don't just do it in a kind of amorphous way like the enthusiasts did or the fanatics, as Luther right. called
0: Which Luther had huge qualms with. Right. Who so claimed a direct this. revelation from the
1: Holy Spirit, yeah. Sure, or just that I'm I'm enlightened. So believe me, I mean I'm enlightened. So I got the scriptures right, or something like that. No, there's actually something in in the um, uh, an authoritative criterion which is drawing you out of your subjectivity. When 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 you're driven back in any way back to your own subjectivity, away from Christ, but back to your own subjectivity, or back to your own works obviously this is the byproduct of, of, of human religion which we can look all around us in world history and see this is how human religion works okay um so you can see that I think is an objective way of looking at the Holy Spirit and so um I think he's right when he uh, says to uh, Rasmus uh that it's the risen Jesus present in scripture that's reading you when you read scripture and not um and uh and 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 it's 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 not the the reader who uh, is in control and just sort of sitting down and saying, okay, well, so many passages say this and so many passages say, and then so on and so forth. This is a racist one to say. Yeah. And I do believe,
0: and I believe, I know Stephen. I was going to let you go, but, but just for Stephen, I think, you know, there are a lot of Roman Catholics who, who do receive scripture in that way. I I would say, um, Mm -hmm. though I, my qualm with the Roman Catholic church overall is that, um, often, uh, when it hasn't, it has worked into its formulations, um, Things, things alien to what to what i think the spirit of scripture is but i'm sorry go ahead stephen
2: yeah no i mean obviously uh, um obviously the historical questions are you know are something that uh you know i've been looking into quite a bit but obviously bears looking into even more because it's kind of the you know the main the main part of my case uh, but as far as everything else I, mean, I you know i guess i'm just unsatisfied with the idea of like um, process of like like you said, Doctor Kilcrease, process of elimination as being the 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 means by which we we come to you know what, you know how to read scripture and how to understand um, what what God has done uh, what God has done in, in giving us scripture and giving us the church and so um, that's something that that's you know, just I guess that's my my hang up um, my hang up on that is I, I don't I don't want to say that God in in coming to earth and in, in incarnation in his resurrection and ascension, kind of just left uh such a and pardon my phrasing here, my, my you know new dad brain is not not cooking yet. Uh no. but uh but uh, it feels it feels slipshod. It feels like God left us with, with uh all this stuff that Paul. I mean Peter Peter referenced Paul's, some of Paul's letters and parts of Paul's letters as being scripture and also being confusing to people that didn't need historians and didn't need uh to learn the original languages because they knew them and didn't need, you know, context and all this other stuff. Like when you have all that, your people that letters were written to, and still this is this is something that, that can be confusing and needs explanation and, and needs uh to be laid out by an authoritative teaching of some kind. I mean, to me that I don't know how we get away from that just because we're removed by time, I guess is my point.
1: And I will leave you with the last word on that. So. Yeah, absolutely. I, have to, I do have to go. So. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All, right.
0: All right. Thank you both. This is a livelier discussion than I thought. Um, it's our first debate we have ever had on that. I, I don't know, but uh, I, <laughs> we kept it Christian. We kept it,
2: so.
0: we, kept, we kept it in love and charity and understanding and listening. That's what matters. <laughs> uh so thank you dr Cookreese, for and uh, we look forward to uh to having you on again in the future and steven we'll we'll uh same for you so god bless mm-hmm. you both uh, yep. thank you for our listeners uh we'll uh look forward to you tuning in next time god bless thank you so much i will hey drew again well i apologize if you were waiting in suspense to hear about our t-shirts that were canceled um that was probably not the right word to use uh this is this was not an instance of cancel culture at all um i forget the website but whatever we used we had t-shirts designed this is about a year and a half ago we had t-shirts designed through a certain website uh for this podcast and it actually used the old uh logo and the old art so um i would love to look into doing t-shirts again which you know would have our current you know podcast artwork which is too, you know awesome pictures of Thomas Cramner with Martin Luther, uh, next to him. Um, so maybe we'll look into it anyways. Um, yes, we did have some t-shirts made. I think maybe a total of four or five were printed. I know I own one, Steven owns one, and I don't know if anyone, and I feel like there's one person that ordered one and I'm forgetting who they are. Um, but, uh, they were only on sale for a day before the, our host, uh, well, this website who sells lots of t-shirts, Um, stop selling our t-shirts, um, not for any controversial reason, but for a simple fact, as I learned that, um, if the shirt does not sell so many units, I guess in a certain period of time after going on sale that they, uh, they will discontinue selling the shirt. So I guess we weren't that marketable, um. Which is understandable, uh, especially in those early days of the podcast, <laughs> because, uh, you know, we, we are not uh, the Joe Rogan show um, and we don't have, you know, tens of thousands of listeners or anything. And so uh, and we were just beginning at that time. So, you know, um, maybe we'll look into T-shirts again. Maybe we'll go with a local business support, something, uh, you know, in, near in one of our communities you know, me or many of the hosts, if they know anyone. Uh, but yeah, because I think our current podcast artwork would make for a really cool looking t-shirt. Um, and so uh, no promises, but be on the lookout in the future. We might be selling merch again. So God bless everyone. Um, stay tuned. This is our last episode for April. Episodes coming up in May. Uh, I won't spoil too much, but we do have Zach Hicks coming on, which we're very excited about. Wrote a very good book called Worship by Faith Alone, which is about Thomas Cramner. It's about the making of the Book of Common Prayer. And it's really um, a lot of the themes we explore and discuss on this podcast and how those were very much central to Cramner's thought, as well as the influence um, that uh, Martin Luther, the guy who's um, to Cramner's left on our podcast artwork, had on Cramner, uh, especially his uh, the long gospel distinction uh, which was so central for Luther, it was also very central for Thomas Cranmer. And um, when you look at the prayer book, when you look at the Collex, it definitely comes out if you if you're if uh, if if you're paying attention to that. So, but yeah, we will be uh, having a discussion on all that with Zach Hicks, um, and we look forward to it. God bless.